Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is the first in a two-part series featuring Professor Brian Choi. Professor Choi is a Harvard-educated lawyer who is now a jointly appointed professor at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law and Department of Computer Science and Engineering. His current work focuses on tort liability and data privacy as they relate to cyber-physical systems like autonomous vehicles. In this series, we discuss a bunch of different aspects related to his work in tort liability and data privacy. Uh, Professor Choi shares some great anecdotes and stories of his related to his experiences in these fields, and then we kind of discuss a potential better way forward. I had a lot of fun recording this with Professor Choi down in Columbus, Ohio, and the result is content that I know all of you are going to enjoy. Uh, but with that said, let's get rolling to today's episode of Driverless. Welcome, uh, Professor Brian Choi, to the Driverless Podcast. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you're a professor at both Ohio State's College of Law and their Department of Computer Science and Engineering, right? That's right. All right. So how do you balance? I mean, that just out of the gate seems like a huge workload. Uh, well, so, you know, my teaching duties are split, right? So I have um, like some courses that I teach over at the law school, which are the technology law courses, some intellectual property, and some internet law. And then I also am uh, teaching over at the computer science department. So the idea is that I'm um, doing this interdisciplinary thing. Uh, where I teach, you know, legal methods essentially mm-hmm. to um, the computer engineers, um, expose them a little bit more to what is law, right? This this foreign thing. Um, I also have an affiliation with the Translational Data Analytics Institute, and they're the ones who are responsible for trying to bring in these uh, interdisciplinary scholars. Um, and I also am affiliated with the, our program on data and governance, which is housed in the law school. Um, you know, which, as you can imagine deals with questions of data and governance. Sure, of course. Yeah. So whenever you're with the uh, engineers, are you kind of explaining things for them to watch out for? Or like what what kind of law are you showing them? Yeah, so it's interesting. So often the first question is how do we comply, right? Sure. What are the laws? And it's treated as a static thing. Um, All we have to do is tailor our behavior to what the law requires. And what I'm trying to get them to think about is that actually it's this interaction, right? Uh, That Law is shaped by what technology is capable of, uh, and then on the flip side, um, technology is shaped by what the law then can require or demand. I mean, it's, it's this conversation rather than as you know, one immovable object, yeah. um, you know, trying to shape the other. Um, so that's really the conversation, right? So tort law is a very nice example where, you know, often the standard is what's reasonable, and what's reasonable depends on what the technology is capable of, what's the state of the art, and so forth. Um, and to get engineers to start thinking about that at an earlier stage, at the design stage, rather than at, you know after they've built everything and then it's sort of oh it's too late now we have to build something on top uh, well you know it's too hard too expensive no for sure I mean I think there are plenty of companies that wish that their engineers had gone to your class right now um, I'm happy to have more yeah right for sure so how did you uh, how did you kind of decide I mean this interdisciplinary approach you know. Um, you went you went to college and you went to law school, right? You're a lawyer. You went to law school. How did you kind of decide, like, I want to kind of teach on both sides of this? Yeah, well, it's a, a little bit of a plan, a little bit of luck, right? Um, right, always is. My background was in computer science, my undergraduate degree. Uh, and then I, at some point, decided that the legal policy issues were just really fascinating, right? So I uh, grew up at a time of Napster and peer-to-peer <laughs> file sharing, and that's my original kind of foray into law. Uh, and... Um, so that was the sort of the that was a hot issue in technology and computer science at the time, um, 
And from there, it has now spawned into data privacy and, and AI and machine learning and all, the, all these other neat things. But it's interesting how the one of the questions at the beginning, right, was how do we enforce copyright against all these anonymous file sharers? Right. Um, should we know more about them? Should we track more data? And should we surveil them and spy on them and sue them? Um, and all these questions kind of then evolve and mature into these um, you know, questions that we're talking about today, which is uh, you know the data. Now that we have big data, we have privacy uh, concerns, and um, how do we balance all these interests? And so you know, with Napster. I I think it's funny, right? Napster, I also grew up, I was part of the Napster generation. And uh, you, know, you think about like Sean Parker and kind of revolutionizing the music industry. And, and it's interesting how you're talking about the data we were trying to collect on those people using that, right? It's really analogous to the kind of data we're trying to collect now on, on drivers, on uh, pedestrians, things like that to help make these autonomous vehicles uh, navigate the roads, right? And, and I'm wondering, you know, since you've kind of been interested in the subject for a while uh what are some what are some parallels you're seeing like from the early days of copyright infringement and things like that towards today where you have these big data on neural networks i mean do you see any parallels there sure i mean so one of the interesting themes is that when napster came out it was this idea that we're going to break this industry everything's going to be free and libertarian uh, and that hasn't really been the way that things have panned out, right? The right. rules have been imposed, and so that's a big theme in cyber law scholarship that actually the rules still apply, right? Uh, and I think that there's a similar kind of thing going on with uh, autonomous vehicles, with the AI, with the, you know, you see the blockchain and cryptocurrency crowds sure, as well yeah. trying to say, well, the governments no longer matter, we can figure this out for ourselves. Um, and we don't actually know how it's all going to play out. Um, you know, the, the ways that the technology will uh, evolve, the ways that the data will be used, these are things that will uh, continue to play out um, and, and, you know, we'll have to see what happens, right? Sure. And, and, you know, just touching on that and reading some of your scholarship, like some of the things that I think are interesting is something you just said, right? We don't know how it's going to play out. And that's what I think is really cool is it seems like you're kind of tackling that head on. I think a lot of people kind of shy away from that and try and you know, feign knowledge that they don't have or pretend that this stuff is set in stone when, you know, as lawyers, we're very aware that the regulatory schemes are yet to be developed. How do you kind of prepare law students to navigate that? Because law students want the answer, right? They want the black letter law and this is how it's applied. How are you preparing them to tackle what could be a radically different landscape from what we have today? Yeah, I mean, you know, in general, you're trying to give them two things at once, right? One is a snapshot in time of what is the law today. And another is the flexibility and adaptability to um, move and evolve with the times. Um, you know, privacy law is an example where you know data privacy was not even really on most people's radars 10, 20 years ago. And I remember feeling like a weirdo, where <laughs> uh, I remember walking into a bank uh, to get co-signed onto my parents' vault, right? Sure. And the the bank manager was filling out some form and. She said, well, what's your occupation? And I didn't want to answer that because it was unnecessary information. Right? The, the relevant information is that I am being authorized by my parent uh, mm -hmm. to have access to this vault, and, and this bank manager wanted all this additional information. Now, my my mother was like, you know, he has a very respectable profession. Right, right? yeah. Um, but, the you know, there was some tension. You know, why is it that you don't want to answer this question? Right. right? Um, you know, she... Uh, 
wanted to write unemployed and, and my mother was like no he's not unemployed yeah. <laughs> that's a very you know uh, so this uh, you know that whole debate hadn't really taken off I'll give you a second example so I, I was I walked into New York Sports Club you know just to see if I wanted to have a gym membership sure uh, the person at the desk asked for ID and I was like, why do you need ID? I'm just here to check out the club. Maybe I'll sign up for a membership. I don't need to show you my ID until I'm actually signing up for a membership. Of course. And then she wanted to kick me out of the, the building, right? Uh, and you know, the, one of the managers came out and smoothed things over, and ultimately sure. I did sign up. But, um, but it was, again, this pre-awareness of, well, what is data privacy for? Who cares about it? Now we're seeing this come back, right? Um, Starbucks had a whole yeah. kerfuffle about, you know, should these people be allowed to be in this building? Um, just like hanging out. Just hanging right. out. Do they have to show ID? Do they have to have a purpose? But um, anyway, so this this it's been amazing to see this awareness um, of data privacy issues become a real sort of everyday thing. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a similar thing with any kind of new technology, right? The, the early adopters, the early issues. Um, maybe some people along the fringes are aware and are concerned and raising the alarms. But you know, on the mainstream, they're saying, well, you know. Who cares about this? Right. Well, and, and it's interesting, too. I mean, you see with even like the Facebook data scandal, right? People are now hyper aware of even what their what their cyber data is being used for, um, where I just don't think we saw that a couple decades ago. Um, yeah. I mean, cyber bullying is, is now the major sure. issue, right? Um, but when Facebook started, I remember it was one of the appeals was just how easy it was to see data about your friends, right? Right. Uh, and no one kept their. No one had privacy settings. Everything was open. It was all college campus anyway. So right. It's, Who knows if they would have even used the privacy settings, right? Right. It's friends or friends of friends. Um, it was a trusted environment, uh, and now we're seeing right Instagram, Snapchat. People are uh, you know with the deep fakes. Um, yeah. You know, people's images being out is a threat, mm -hmm. uh, and so you're starting to see people shut down their social media accounts, and um, you know this is not something that people thought of. What what made you predisposed? I mean, I think that story is really interesting uh, of you being at the bank, right? Because you you do have, you have great credentials, you have a great job, you know. And what do you think left you being predisposed to be like you, you don't need this data, you, you know? Like I I'm just here because my mom wants me to be here. I'm not here, you know. I'm not a customer. Uh, what do you think left you kind of saying I, I'm good? Like this is you know I don't need to share this. Yeah, I, I was already studying these issues. Oh, see, so, yeah. okay, I gotcha. And so I'm in, I'm influenced by the people who are mentoring me. Uh, who are exposing me to these ideas, uh, and I, and I, you know, obviously universities and academia are a great place to, to get an early edge on these, you know, ideas. Yeah. And so what? Uh, and now kind of shifting a little bit, what led you to being interested in like autonomous vehicles and connected vehicles and things like that? Yeah, I actually have to thank one of my mentors, um, Christopher Yu, is a professor at Penn Law School. Okay. Uh, and he brought me in to work on this project. It was a, a grant-funded. Uh, by NSF and by Intel, uh, and they're working on questions of privacy and security in cyber physical systems. And, and cyber physical systems is the technical term um, <laughs> used in the computer science community to describe um, network components that are controlling physical uh, uh, act, you know, sensors and actuators. Right? So sure. They're interacting with the real world, but are controlled by a, you know, a, a, you know, a computer layer, computer software layer. layer. Software layer. Um, and so mm -hmm. what are the threats that come from that? And how do we manage those risks? Got it. Okay. Got it. okay. And NSF, NSF, what is that? The, the National Science Foundation. Science Foundation. Thanks. And so you, so you, you get, get interested in autonomous vehicles, vehicles and, and, you know, 
one of the things I think is really interesting is a lot of what you touch on is kind of the current regulatory scheme, right, and tort scheme, and the way we're going to have to navigate this interesting environment where we have these autonomous vehicles coming out of the road. We still have human drivers. What's your sense of the current tort scheme and how it's controlling the rollout of things like, you know, level three, maybe level two driving while having human drivers on there? Yeah, so the really interesting thing is there is no good scheme. Right, so we have an old scheme that applies to manufactured goods, to human behavior. What we don't have is a good tort scheme for software. Um, so the old scheme is uh, you have negligence and you have products liability. These are the two dominant ways of thinking about tort law. Negli and they're both ultimately about reasonableness. Um, so negligence is about the reasonableness of your conduct. Um, were you careful enough? Did you uh, take enough care? Did you pay attention? Um, is this what a, uh, an ordinary person would have done, or were you, you know, less Reacting, careful? Right. right. Were you acting like an ordinary person would in this circumstance? Right. An ordinary yeah. person of, you know, of prudence, right? Sure. Um, and then products liability on the other side is talking about the product, right? Is the product a reasonable product? Would you put this into the marketplace, or is it poisoned food, or is it something so dangerous, has exposed blades um, that a child could be cut uh, running sure. through the lawn, right? Uh, so lawnmowers, blenders, um, glass Coke bottles, these are examples of things that were um, that might be unreasonably dangerous, and so then you have, you, you attach tort liability. Sure. Now, software has been an exception, right? and there are all kinds of reasons given for why software has not been subjected to these uh, regimes. Um, one of them is that, well, software doesn't cause physical injury. Right? That was the That's one of the classic um, go-tos for why we don't apply tort law to software. But, you know, Microsoft Word crashes. You don't hire a tort lawyer to say, hey, you lost all my data. Like uh, lost wages claim or anything like right. that. Right. Um, and there are, there are all kinds of claims where are cases where people have tried to bring these kinds of claims. Mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine a business uh, is running uh, software and uh, they lose their, their all their data. Uh, that's not just, you know, it's just not just documents, right? That's wages. That could be yeah. uh, you know, income. It could yeah. be, you know, all kinds of sensitive data. Uh, and there's no claim because that's not a physical kind of injury, right? Now, but there are, there are other, I mean, that's one big reason. There are other kinds of reasons why software has not been um, subjected to this. Uh, and and, and I, what I argue, actually, so I have a piece coming out called Crashworthy Code. Mm -hmm. And in that piece, I argue that actually it's because software is just really hard. It's really complex. Uh, and I don't mean just in a kind of a, oh, there's a lot of things going on. I mean that in software, uh, in computer science terminology, there is a, con a concept of complexity where you cannot compute um, how correct or valid the software program is. Right? So we know that all code is going to have errors, it's going to have bugs, it's going to have faults. Um, and so the mere discovery of a fault or an error is you know, inevitable. Sure. Um, and then the next question is, well, was it reasonable to have this error? Um, and we don't know, right? And so why, why, and just kind of dig into the weeds for a sec, why don't we know? Why isn't there a standard where, okay, for software that is this level of complexity, we're okay with there being, and again, I'm kind of oversimplifying, but we're okay with there being seven bugs. But if we find that eighth bug, that eighth bug is what tells us this is no longer reasonably safe. How do you kind of, I mean, why isn't there something like that already in place? Well, it's not the number of bugs, right? It's okay. also each bug could be the quality. It as could well, be right? right. It could yeah. be disastrous, or it could be a harmless error. Sure. Uh, but the reasonableness can be so it could be judged on that basis. It can also be judged on the basis of was the programmer careful enough, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I would say that there are really two ways that software manufacturers try to make sure that their code is you know, safe or of, of good quality. Yeah. Uh, and one is on the front end, right? You try to design the product as well as you can. You try to take as many um, measures, you do some code review, uh, and there are actually formal methods that you could use, uh, but they're very expensive, um, they're very difficult, um, it requires more programmer hours, uh, and a lot of programmers just don't like doing it. Right? So, so economically, this, it's just not feasible? Economically and culturally. Culturally, right? okay. Uh, so uh, the military actually had for a long time a requirement that you had to use formal methods when designing software for say, military planes. Sure. Um, they revoked that because it just wasn't feasible. Okay. There weren't uh, programmers that wanted to use the language. All kinds of exemptions were being granted. Uh, and so in 1997, I believe, um, they just said, we're not going to do this anymore. Okay. Um, so on the front end, you could be a little more careful. Uh, but we're not using the best methods. Right? And part of that is just because we don't want to. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is because no one's forcing us to. Uh, and then on the back end, right, once you've written it, you could test the code. And that's what of most manufacturers rely on. You just kind of run it through a set of battery of tests. Um, and we're even seeing that with the autonomous vehicles doing all these miles, right? We're seeing that with companies like Waymo who are saying, we're driving 5 million miles as a way to kind of test this technology and make sure it's working. Yeah. And we're kind of seeing the shortcomings of that. But, you know, it, it, it's a good idea, right? Yeah. But, the, but the reality is that those shortcomings are inevitable. It's not like exactly. you can actually do enough testing. Mm -hmm. Mathematically, it's prove, provable that testing will never prove uh, that you don't have errors in your code. Sure. So you could run, I mean, Waymo's been running tests for years. Right. Um, and they're still having problems, right? They're and still that's, discovering new things. And I think it's important to kind of point out that that's, that's expected. I think, I think you're making a really good point of we expect that there's still going to be shortcomings, right? We're, we're not looking for the perfect technology. We're looking for a um, best, you know, best case scenario. Right. We're looking for good enough, what's right. reasonable. But again, right, if some error crops up and you say, oh, gosh, well, that should never have gotten in there. Well, how do you know? Sure. Right? How do you judge that? Well, and it's the same way I mean, with human drivers, right? We don't expect every human driver to be a perfect driver. There's a level of sufficiency which allows you to get a driver's license that says, yes, you're allowed to operate a vehicle. If we were demanding perfect drivers, I mean, I don't, I don't know that anyone would be on the road, right? Right. So, but with the, with the, human driver, mm -hmm. uh, you're holding that person you know, accountable Personally for their liable. action. Yeah. And there's a, a rough sense of what a human is capable of, right? Uh, yeah. and, and, you, and if you don't know, you get a panel of jury members, <laughs> and they get to decide. Right? Sure. So we have a, a way of testing it. The problem with technology, uh, with, especially with complex technology like computer software, is you, you assemble that panel of jurors, and they have no idea. Mm -hmm. right? It's not something that you can say, uh, well, I'm a, an expert in software, and therefore I know. Sure. Or you have six experts or 12 experts and say, well, yes, that was a reasonable piece of software. Yeah, I mean, most of the jurors are driving to the courthouse, right? So they can say, well, this is what I know from my experience driving. The same jurors aren't going home to write code. Right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And or even if they write code, that may not be the code that's at issue in this particular case. Sure, so it makes it harder for them to kind of approximate what level of code is sufficient to that kind of reasonable level we were talking about, right? That's right. And so, I mean, kind of what it sounds like, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, we're kind of finding out now that the current scheme is like inadequate, right, for these autonomous vehicles coming out. I mean, the current regulatory scheme, it's not going to be able to handle um, 
you know, the onboarding of all these vehicles onto our roads. Is that right? Right. So I want to return to my piece, yeah. crashworthy code. And the argument there is that the current way that we think about it, that we want to prevent bugs or errors from even entering into the code, and that's actually um, a really difficult thing. We're not going to make progress on that end. And so we should start instead from the assumption that there are going to be errors mm -hmm. and what, what are the mitigation strategies that we should have in place. Uh, and so the analogy is from actually from traditional autom automobiles. Um, and there is a doctrine, an old doctrine uh, called crashworthiness, uh, where you have to anticipate that cars are going to get into accidents and design the cars to respond gracefully in those situations. So things like collapsible steering columns, right? Not having all kinds of knobs on the dashboard that can, you know, go into your eyeball, um, <laughs> sure. making the windshield, the windshield is a certain kind of safety, making sure the door doesn't fall off when you get into a rollover, um, all these kinds of things that we now kind of take for granted, but that were hard fought. Um, and so in cars, we have this doctrine, and I want to import that over to software. Right? Okay. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that cars you know, don't get into accidents. It's really focused on the software mm -hmm. and saying that the software should anticipate that it will crash at times. Just like you know, your, your Word or your Windows crashes, sure. right? uh, and then it has to uh, you know, somehow respond to that. It's got that autosave feature on there that lets me know that it saved three minutes before the crash. Is that kind of what you're talking about? That's one option, right? So right. What, do we, you know, what are the methods that we can use? And, uh, there's an entire literature on software fault tolerance, mm -hmm. um, which relies on a, a few elements. One is redundancies, right? okay. just like hardware, right? Like a motorcycle has two wheels, an 18-wheeler has 18 wheels. Sure. Um, if you get a flat tire on an 18-wheeler, it's no, not a big deal, right? So having the additional redundancy. A seatbelt and an uh, and, uh, airbag. Right. Same that's, idea. That's yeah. a different kind of redundancy, right? Now you have right. diversity of redundancy. Sure. So with software, there's a sim same kind of idea, right? Rather than hardware redundancy, you're saying... We want to write the same function in two or three different ways, mm -hmm. um, or more ways, uh, so that if one of the functions has an error and malfunctions or crashes, uh, we can now rely on the other versions, right? And they can't be identical versions because software, if it's identical, will fail in the exact same way. Of course. So you have to design it in different ways, um, and then you have to con constantly be checking to make sure, right, that the versions are running properly. So you might have to vote, uh, you know, and you know if there's a if there's a if there's a difference in opinion <laughs> among the different versions, yeah. you might have to take a vote, right? And say okay. we think the two out of three um, is a is a is more likely to be correct. Okay. And so, how would you help uh, companies that are creating these these cars and these developing these technologies? How would you help them to navigate this um, crashworthiness of software? Is there other methods besides redundancies and things like that that they can build in that'll help make their software not infallible, but um, infallible in a way that still prevents the kind of catastrophic harm we're looking to avoid? Well, let me be clear, right? There can still be catastrophic harm. Okay. Right. There can still be deaths, failures. The question is just, you're, you know, have you done enough? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about software quality in terms of, you know, are there bugs or not? you can never answer that question, have you done enough, right? Instead, uh, with the crash-worthy uh, framework, you can. You can say you've built enough redundancy or you've built enough fault tolerance that uh, that you can say, well, you know, even though there was this catastrophic accident, even though someone died, um, well, we can still say that the company did enough uh, and we shouldn't hold them liable, uh, you know, 
because that's the question, right? In every case sure. that comes up, there's going to be some injury. There's going to be something bad that happens. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to distinguish the ones where you really think the software company didn't do enough and the ones where the software company did do enough. Yeah. That's the hard question. So, Brian, we were talking a little bit about how um, you know it's, it's hard to get our jurors to get their heads around the software, right? The software, the complexity of it. But... You know, we do have our jurors weigh in on cases where there's medical malpractice or um, some kind of medical device goes wrong. And those those jurors aren't going home. They're not performing heart surgery, brain surgery. They're not developing pacemakers. But as a society, we're still comfortable with them making that determination. How do you think that differs from what we're comfortable with our jurors determining whenever it comes to software? Yeah, so there's two answers to that question. Uh, one part of the answer is that we treat professionals like doctors and lawyers, uh, to, we hold them to a different standard than we do uh, computer science engineers or programmers. Okay. Um, and the difference is that because they're professionals, uh, they are held to the standard of their learned profession. Um, and so you have expert witnesses testify about what would be reasonable behavior. Um, did you did a doctor perform reasonable care? Sure. Uh, a standard of care. Uh, and if the if your peers agree that what the surgeon did or what the doctor did or what the lawyer did was reasonable, then uh, then the jury doesn't really have a role to play there. Now, with computer science engineers, it's different. Um, they're not considered to be a profession. Do you know why uh, that is? I mean, just the only reason I ask is you know there are certainly engineers in uh, in San Francisco who are making just as much you know monetarily. They're just as specialized as surgeon would be. Do you know why they're considered not to be profession? Yeah, a number of courts have addressed this issue. Um, there's a, a number of reasons um, uh, that they point to, although I don't wouldn't say that these are definitive. But one is that uh, it's not a licensed profession. Right. Anyone no can come in. Yeah. Uh, and uh, second reason is you know they, they don't. There's not a real good enforcement of a code of ethics. Right? Uh, there could be other reasons, um, but those are the big ones. Um, and I think another big, actually, I should add one more, which is mm-hmm. that uh, law and medicine have traditionally been considered professions. Right? Sure. There's law, medicine, and the clergy. Um, and we've added a few more, but uh, computer science <laughs> may be too new, uh, and we, it's not an established profession. It's not one that's customarily been given these kinds of special provisions. So that may play a role as well. So we, we may get there someday. We're just not there yet. We may. Yeah. Right? So far, the courts that have looked at it, and there have been a number of them, they've all said, no, this is not a profession, even if it's a trait. Right? Even if they, you know, even if computer science engineers consider themselves to be a profession or professionals, um, the law does not treat them that way. Sure. And so now I kind of like so, to... Oh, so that's on. the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is factually, right? what's determinable? Right. So there's the legal standard of what doctors and lawyers are held to, and then there's a the factual question of, well, what do doctors and lawyers actually know about what you know other peers are doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that it's easier for uh, a doctor or lawyer to, to judge the behavior of one of their fellow members of, this, of the profession. Uh, with computer science engineers, it's much harder uh, to assess whether or not the code was satisfactory, was reasonable? What would other computer science engineers, um, would they have coded it this way? There's not much consensus about that, right? And so there's not. Because the, the reason I'm wondering is, is you know, 
in the same way that I could have a, uh, a heart surgeon, right? A cardiothoracic surgeon come in here and said, this is the kind of uh, stitching I would have done here. This is the kind of graph I would have used here. Why, why couldn't I get an engineer to come in and say, well, this is kind of the software, you know, this is the coding I would have done here. This is kind of the algorithm I would have used here. Why is it so different in the sense that it's not as uniform? Yeah, well, who is doing that standardization? Well, and that's, I guess, what I'm at. Is, is that what we're lacking? We're lacking standardization. We're lacking kind of that uniform body that's saying, this is what we approve, this procedure, this level of coding. I think that's definitely a big part of the story. Okay. You have the AMA, you have the ABA. These are um, governing boards that are, you know, associations that are trying to standardize and say, here are some basic standards that everyone should adhere to. Uh, the interesting thing about software encoding is that it's very anti-establishment. Everyone is resisting this kind of standardization. Um, they're saying, I'm going to do it my way, and in fact, I can do it better than anyone else can, and I'm not even going to show you how I did it because that's my secret sauce. And that's kind of baked into the culture of programming. Um, and so I don't know, right? I mean, in sure. theory, it all sounds nice. You could have this kind of standardization, uh, but that's not where we are today and may not be uh, for a long time. That'll do it for today's episode of Driverless. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at, at underscore driverless or email us at driverless at tuckerellis.com. Thanks as always for listening and talk to you soon.